Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. you ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me today is the man that both Willem Dafoe and John Hamm admitted to feeling anatomically inferior to, Mr. Ryan Seabold! John Ham sucks. John Ham doesn't suck. <laughs> he just, he just, you know what? He just can't compare to you where it counts. That's yeah, that's know. what he was saying, man. I know, I know that. Yeah, no. He knows. I, he definitely knows that. <laughs> and all you ladies know that. <laughs> it's yeah, no. I mean, I'm I'm sure the listeners already picked up on that. You've got like a strong BDE that you kind of bring to each episode, you know. <sighs> Which, yeah. of course, for those that are listening, uh, means bro down energy, actually. In case you didn't know. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> we have got a batshit banana pants crazy ass film this episode. Ryan, break it down for our listeners. Jason, this might be, man, a hard one. This might be my favorite movie we've watched so far. Um, I loved this movie, The Lighthouse, from 2019. Uh, Giving you a quick synopsis here from iTunes. Two lighthouse keepers, played by Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, fight each other for survival and sanity on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. From Robert Eggers, the visionary filmmaker behind horror masterpiece The Witch, which I did not care for. I think we talked about that last episode. Uh, Just a lot of thick... I don't know if they were Cockney accents. I think I called them at one point Pilgrim accents, which I don't know any other way to describe <laughs> it. It was a lot of the, the slang and this and that. And uh, this movie kind of opened that way with some uh, salty sea dog slang from old Willem Dafoe. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, Jesus, here we go. And uh, man, they they kind of ditched it. And I'll tell you, um, it didn't bother me, uh, the slang it didn't matter what they said, really. As long as you get the gist and you're just along for the ride, this movie is a roller coaster. Uh, and added bonus, it answers the age-old question: How would you fuck a fish? And uh, I could, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you, you watch. You Honestly, know, Ryan, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I actually knew the answer to that question. We don't have to go into the specifics, but. Uh, college was weird. Yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> things get weird in college. And uh, sometimes you got to try some stuff like fucking a fish. No, I mean, you know, you watch some mermaid shit when you're a kid and, and uh, this lets you know, hey, this yeah, is exactly. How you can only watch The Little Mermaid so many times as a youth without wanting to take it to the next step. And they did. Robert just Eggers what, said, I got you, fam. And <laughs> showed us very explicitly what mermaid pussy looks like. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> Finally answering the age-old question. The age-old question, to. yes. Yeah. Before we get into it any further, let's go ahead and let's play a trailer from this crazy-ass movie, The Lighthouse.
tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Keeping secrets, are you? No, sir. Why, just spill your beans. kind of interesting is I think this is probably the fourth A24 film we've done on this show already really? out of like you know a dozen or something like that wow. yeah like I feel like 90 90 to 95% of our films like everything but Fritz the Cat has been either A24 or Criterion and I am not complaining about that at all no, believe God me, bless but, them uh, donate to A24 yeah, everybody yeah, love help, what they're help doing help these right fuckers now. out because they're cranking out some gems for us love it absolutely which is not a pun on uncut gems which they did <laughs> oh Jesus uh, no that was not a intentional pun <laughs> so Ryan uh, let's talk about the lighthouse here let's start as we do at the beginning at the beginning film opens up we've got this uh, black screen with these sort of ambient tones not really sure what's going on. All of a sudden, we get a cut to this big gray square, and it's really kind of obfuscated. We don't really see anything that's going on. It ends up being fog that slowly sort of dissipates to reveal an ocean with a boat that is headed toward our titular lighthouse. And right off the bat, there's a lot of stuff that indicates that we're going to be in for a different sort of ride. I mean, the first and obvious most glaring thing is the aspect ratio which at first i did not know this was in four by three i didn't either i didn't either and there's always you know there's there's films that have utilized that aspect ratio before for certain scenes like you know uh, in kill bill for example when she's she's in the coffin a couple other things oftentimes it feels like it's kind of a gimmick of sorts and I think the great thing, one of many great things about this film is that it actually works to really emphasize the sort of claustrophobic nature of, you know, these two guys that are basically going to be trapped in these uh, very small space in this lighthouse for uh, longer than they should. And also it sort of works to highlight the geometry of the film, if you will. So, you know, a lighthouse being a tall, narrow structure, it's interesting because there's a lot of sort of uh, tall, narrow photography. I thought it was interesting, as opposed to being sort of like a wide landscape. Everything's shot almost like vertically. And it wasn't anything that I've ever really considered before I watched it here. And it proved to be very effective. Yeah, it's hip to be a square. Uh, <laughs> the, the old lighthouse. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the grainy black and white footage, too. And it's just... I, so, you know, the film's supposed to take place in 1890, I believe it is. And... 
all of these things sort of add up to lend itself to that atmosphere. You know, we've got old style sort of cinematic tricks, old grainy black and white footage, old 4-3 aspect ratios. Of course, as you referenced the accents, they harken back to an older time. And, uh, you know, it's, so it was just really interesting to see how all these things added up to creating the atmosphere that it does. So you bring up accents, and, and that was, if I noticed one thing that was kind of a little off in the film, um, did you notice that Robert Pattinson's accent kind of changed a little bit throughout the film? I felt like <laughs> we started a little, like, a little British almost, and then, like, there was some salty sea dog stuff, and then he was just regular Robert Pattinson for a minute, and then all of a sudden, uh, by the end, he was from Southie, uh, and he, I felt like I was watching Goodwill <laughs> Hunting. Um, it was a little off-putting. I thought his accent was a little uh, not consistent, but that was just me. I don't know. Maybe I'm a weirdo, but. Oh, no, it was not just you, sir. That was 100% accurate. I actually had that in my notes. I was going to save that for the end, but, you know, you brought it up here in the front. Yeah, no, dude, his accent changes through the entire film in all of the ways that you just mentioned. And uh, in one in one scene, he's trying to be, you know, Dan- Daniel Plainview. And in the next scene, he's trying to be Travis Bickle. And then in the next scene, like you say, he's Robert Pattinson. So all over the place with that. And because the film does play with elements of madness, I suppose if you really wanted to, you could just uh, chalk up what's probably some some lesser acting to uh, to some madness, to some old sea, good old sea madness there. Some no? descent into I'm, madness. I'm so crazy. I'm talking in tongues. I don't even know what 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 accent <laughs> and language I'm talking anymore. Oh man! Unlike uh, Mr. Defoe, who was remarkably consistent in his like gruff sailor delivery, which was just amazing. I mean, he was so great in this film. It's just every every time he opens his mouth, whether you could clearly understand him or not, it was an, it was just an amazing performance with tons of fire and ferocity and everything behind it and uh but his accent was definitely consistent whereas Roberts oh, yeah. was was not No, Defoe as always was a tour de force in this movie. I loves me some Defoe. Uh I don't care what yep. he's in. I loved him as fucking Same. Green Goblin in Spider-Man. Like I don't give a fuck. <laughs> 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 Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't care. Bring bring on some Defoe. He's one of my absolute faves and he was one of the reasons I was really stoked about watching this. Also, this was kind of the Man, I hate using words like breakout because the guy's been acting forever. But uh, this is one of the breakout roles that I noticed from Robert Pattinson. And now, of course, he's our new Batman and he's getting a lot of commercial fare uh, and not just hiding in the background. But before that, everybody knew this guy as, you know, Captain Twilight. And uh, and he always catches shit for that. But then you watch a movie like this and Jesus, like I uh, I'm a newfound Pattinson fan for real. Yeah, man, it's funny. I was actually uh, talking to my wife about this where he's kind of taken a similar trajectory as Daniel Radcliffe. Okay. You know, where he became this sort of breakout, like, teen star, and it was based on, you know, a YA property that sort of took off. And I'm sure he made all the money, probably not Radcliffe money, but I'm sure he made all the money that one would need for the course of his life. And so, yeah, from there, like, he didn't have to worry about doing anything for the money. He could just sort of take roles that appealed to him, and I think that... Because he had that label ascribed to him at a younger age, he was probably, again, like Radcliffe, desperate to escape it. So, yeah, he's done Safdie films. He's done Eggers films. He's worked with some really interesting you know, artists and filmmakers. And I'm sure that a large part of that had to do with the reputation that he did get for being in what a lot of people feel like are shitty movies. 
I assume they are. I haven't seen them. You ever see the Twilight movies, dude? No, never once. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. He was in Harry Potter, though, with, <laughs> with our man Radcliffe. So, uh, you know, he's got that going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. I always yeah. thought he looked like Lurch. Uh, I always called him Lurch. Little little bit, little like, bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Seems less so now that he's older, but when he was younger. I think it's his uh, forehead into his eyes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, especially when he was younger, he definitely had like a Frankenstein thing going on. You rang. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the one thing this movie did open with before we skip too far ahead that I really need to point out, and I noticed this right out the gate and man, it just like compounded and stacked and slapped you in the face. The sound design in this film deserved every award you could throw at someone that makes sound design. Like it opened with the, the, the foghorn and that continued to be a, a sounding alarm and, uh, and a cause for Pattinson's madness uh sea madness and whatnot and uh and added to it until we get to the very end which oh boy stick around folks because it is awesome <laughs> uh but yeah the seahorn that it opens up with as in that gray scene you're talking about with the fog uh i had the pleasure of listening and watching listening to this and watching it i will say listen first because uh man i i enjoy some good sound um on some uh, uh really good speakers and uh holy shit like it just sounded so good and the 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 waves and the rain and all the texture and the mud like everything they did just sounded like shit like it just sounded unpleasant not enjoyable <laughs> and it really put you <laughs> in that mindset like fuck this place i w- i am never ever going to even visit a lighthouse fuck lighthouses <laughs> yeah no it sounded horrible in the absolute best like most exquisite way it was really wonderful funny thing it took me a really long time to realize that that sound was the foghorn i kind of yeah. thought it was something that the filmmaker was doing so because it, 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 in a way it's kind of reminiscent of like what Hans Zimmer does in the Chris Nolan Batman movies where it's okay. just kind of like those low swelling tones and so I thought for a while that it was part of the score but then very early on there's that scene where yeah Robert Pattinson's like holding his hands to his ears and sort of like you know grimacing in anguish as a result of the sound and then I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, the filmmaker's having the actor respond to something that's in the score. Yeah, well, he's like shoveling coal setting or it up for Yeah, yeah, you know, like going to set up some sort of surreal, ethereal, you know, time, warp, wormhole bullshit, whatever it is, right? Like, something like that. Um, and then it, was, it wasn't until much later in the film that I realized, like, oh, that's just, that's the foghorn. And they're just sort of taking creative license with... The way it would sound, because obviously in uh, in, in 1890 they didn't yeah. have uh, <laughs> they didn't have digitized anything. So, um, but yeah, so I thought that was great, and yeah, it was just. I mean, it's one of those things. Like, it's just it sounds great, right? Like each time it comes on, it has the desired effect. It's intense. It's mood setting. It's one of those things where. It's it's abrasive, but it's meant to be so, and 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 it's used just enough without going overboard to be effective. Dude, yeah, and and, and this movie was shot this shit too. Like, oh man, was it for being black and white and everything? Like in four by three, you think there'd be a lot of things that would limit. Uh, these are things that would handcuff a cinematographer um, in a technical aspect of like, okay, here's the deal. <laughs> we're going to shoot it in four by three. We're going to do it black and white. I don't know if these were creative decisions from uh, Eggers <laughs> or the DP suggested it or collaboration of the two, but Jesus, dude, the lighting 
on Defoe was haunting, dude. And sometimes it, it could have just been one light, but man, the way that it was used to and and the effectiveness of what they showed and what they didn't show. Uh, there were moments of nudity that were hidden uh, by darkness and shadows. Mm-hmm. Everything was so specific. And so for these people to get their landing spots as talent and to know, I'm going to take it this far and this and that, and my dick's going to be covered up in shadow, so it's going to be okay. We're going <laughs> to underexpose it. I mean, they uh, they just, uh, I, I thought it was a wonderfully beautiful film for for being so, I hate to say limited, but but unique. I mean, you got to admit, like, Four by three black and white has got to be a unique situation to be tossed into. And and the DP, if you look him up, he hasn't really done a whole lot. He's uh, done a lot of short films. Wow. He did shoot The Witch uh, for Eggers. It's his boy. Uh, I know very little about this guy. I'm going to have to look him up. Um, guy named uh, Yaren Blaschke. Uh, I'm probably butchering the the pronunciation. I do that to people. I'm sorry, everybody. But yeah, <laughs> he's a stud. He's a young upstart. He's uh, he's very young. Um and uh or ish uh in the business and uh i can't wait to see what he comes out with next i'm gonna watch everything this guy makes the witch was also really beautiful in its own way um very kind of bleak uh and and monotone and muted uh in its effect but uh the setting was was great for that and he did a great job uh but this was like next level yeah absolutely and i think that one of the things that's most impressive and this kind of speaks to like a larger opinion that I have of film in general, which is that so often in films, especially the larger the film, you you see this a lot more often, which is that filmmakers sort of seem hesitant or ambivalent about really exploring their environment, you know, and whether it's just because the focus is on the performances or what have you, rarely do you see a lot of times where a filmmaker will take full advantage of what the environment has to offer, you know? And so I, I think of all these, you know, superhero films, for example, and they make these giant, really ornate, elaborate sets. And oftentimes it's like we just speed past them, right? Like you'll get a little three second establishing shot of some beautiful environment. And then it's just a series of close ups and you're not really seeing the set design and everything else except for maybe and you know some distorted bokeh on the side of the frame because everything's doing close-ups on like some 20 million dollar actors right so it's really cool when you have these sort of younger filmmakers and i'm sure a lot of it is the financial constraints that are put on filmmakers by having a lack of a significant budget like you have with these indie films but he, he really wasn't afraid to just say, okay, let's film the hell out of everything we can here. Let's start getting creative. You know, no such thing as too many Dutch shots on this one. I think like half the film is, is shot in Dutch angles. I know. Um, but <laughs> that was kind of weird. <laughs> I don't know if you got that. But, uh, but yeah, but there's a lot of, you know, uh, sort of natural geography and architecture with a lot of the stones and the ocean and the hills and the, and the lighthouse itself. You know, whether it's the the spiral geometry of looking straight up or straight down within the structure itself. There's just so many examples of interesting visuals just on this tiny little island with a little shack and a lighthouse, right? Right. And for him to be able to consistently deliver impressive visuals throughout the entire two hours of this, and we never... 
it feels claustrophobic, but never necessarily repetitive in terms of the way the visuals are presented. So I was never bored once. I, I wasn't looking at my yeah, phone. Correct, like same. I was never distracted. I was engaged. I mean, a lot of that is is chalked up to the performances of these guys. But uh, you know, there were times that you're seeing Robert Pattinson just do chores for like. I don't know, five minutes. And uh, there's a whole montage of shit. He's cleaning and scraping. And, you know, I, I didn't care. I was in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, speaking of that, too, <laughs> how about the fact that the first, what, 10 to 15 minutes, there's no dialogue at all? I know. It's literally just sound effects and score. Yep. And it's not until they're finally at the table and... I believe it's Willem Dafoe's character, Thomas, that finally says a cheer when he's actually about to yeah, he's have making his a toast. drink with dinner. Yep. Correct. Yeah. And at the time when we start out, Winslow, the Robert Pattinson character, he doesn't drink. You know, he thinks drinking makes you stupid. He makes a comment as such. And this is, of course, going to change by the end of the film. To <laughs> <degree>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this 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 movie is kind of like uh, documents the descent of Gary Busey. You know, I just felt like I was <laughs> the documentary. Well, it's of- funny because I remember when you described uh, our very first episode, the travails of Aguirre and Charlie Kaufman as slow descents into madness, and that phrase rattled around my head several times by the end of this film. Absolutely. <laughs> this also uh, was a literal film uh, representation uh, of what, how I believe a little behind the scenes look of Jason and I making this podcast, by the way. So if you go watch this movie <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder what it's like to be, you know, Hey, what's it like to make a podcast with Jason and Ryan? That's gotta be fun, right? Hey, watch this movie. I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of hallucination and near fist fights and uh, also a lot of farting. A lot of, yeah. Flatulence, masturbation, mermaid <laughs> fucking. It's just, this this podcast, folks. <laughs> it gets messy behind the scenes, folks. Yep. But we bleed for our art. We bleed for you guys. This Absolutely. is why we do it. Yep. It's a bird pecking good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the funny things. So, you know, earlier on in the film, I do like the fact that they do present Thomas as like a legit gruff sailor. Right. Like so often people are like, oh, you know, that guy's a really salty dog of a sailor. And it's not necessarily, maybe he's a little rough around the edges. This dude is a goddamn sailor through and through, right? Like farting, pissing, cussing, hacking up gross shit at meals and spitting on the floor and telling people to go fuck themselves and do their bidding and blah, blah, blah. Like this guy is a salty dog for sure. And we we see a lot of this sort of, initial imposing his strength on the Winslow character right up front when he basically tells him like, you're going to do all the work. I'm going to man the lighthouse. You're going to call me, sir. And you know, if you don't basically, I'm going to knock your teeth out. I actually do have a clip of that Ryan for everybody listening of him dressing him down when he does a poor job of maybe scrubbing the floors. Maybe not was never really a hundred percent sure. I think he did, but uh, let's go ahead and listen to that just to get a sense of the power play here. You've been neglecting your duties, lad. Don't deny it. What do you call that? Sir? What? I, I mopped and swept twice over, You lying dog. 
Well, I swept them. Tis begrimed and bedabbled. Unwiped, unwashed, and disdained. Get some kind of purr out of molesting me. Come now. I already says. How dare ye contradict me, you dog? Now look here. I ain't never intended to be no housewife nor slave in taking this job. And it ain't right. These lodges is more ramshackle than any shanty boys camp I ever seen. The Queen of England's old fancy housekeeper couldn't even done no better than what I done. Because I tell you, I scrubbed this here place twice over. And so I say you did nothing of the sort. And I say you swab it again and you swab it proper like this time. And you'll be swabbing it ten times more after that. And if I tells you to pull up and apart every floorboard and clapboard of this here house and scour them down with your bare bleeding knuckles, you'll do it. And if I tells you to yank out every single nail from every mold and nail hole and suck off every speck of rust till all them nails sparkle like a sperm whale's pecker and then carpenter the whole light station back together from scrap and then do it all over again, you'll do it! And by God and by golly, you'll do it, smiling lad, cause you like it, you like it cause I says you will. Contradict me again, and I'll dock your wages. You hear me, lad? Aye, sir. Ow. Swab, dog. Swab. <laughs> this is largely going to be the dynamic that they possess throughout the first half of the film. By the end of the film, Winslow, I believe is his name, uh, he's going to sort of get the upper hand. But uh, at least for the first half of the film, Thomas is largely in charge. And one of the more interesting and sort of moments that gets you thinking that, okay, you know, we're about to go like way off into La La Land on some of this stuff is uh, earlier on when we get the so there's like this tracking shot. It goes up. By the way, Ryan, I forget from film school. Is there another name for a tracking shot that goes vertically instead of horizontally or is it just called a vertical tracking shot? No, I mean, I would call it boom, like you boom up, like where the camera's going to boom up. Um, oftentimes oh, boom up, boom down. OK, yeah, right. You, you have tilt and pan. Uh, people will use. Well, yeah, but that's more just like. Yeah, Correct. like like tilting the camera up. stationary. Yeah, no. you're moving the, the the focal plane of the lens. But th- this is uh, you know, you're actually moving the camera up. You're gonna boom up. You know, that would that's how I would say it anyway. <laughs> okay. If there's any film nerds out there that awesome. want to call me on my bullshit, fire away. But <laughs> that's a vernacular that. <laughs> yeah, I would no. Use. One of the things that I realized in watching this film is you don't really see a ton of boom shots. You know, where it's just literally like a vertical tracking shot without, you know, some sort of tilt or you know, because a lot of times you'll get that with like. Um, establishing shots or, you know, exteriors, whatever, where, you know, people, the, the filmmaker will kind of go up and back in a wide shot, you know, kind of that sort of panoramic display. Um, but rarely do you just get like, you know, a, a vertical Kubrick shot. And that's what a lot of these were, right? They were just these like vertical Kubrick shots. So there's this awesome shot where it's going up the exterior of the lighthouse. Uh, again, you know, we've got the sides of our television lopped off. So we've got this sort of claustrophobic in, uh, atmosphere that's uh, as a result of the not only photography but everything else that's going on and then it goes up to that spinning light and we get this great ethereal scene where the light's spinning around and 
Winslow's sort of looking up. He's wondering what's going on. And it's almost like a Ken Russell style sort of like trip scene where Willem Dafoe's character, Thomas, is like naked and like cheering with with the with the bottle. Um, there, there's a lot of sort of these like, you know, like like visual acid trip sort of hallucination scenes. Another one that happens right after that is where he is going out and he sees all the logs rolling in from sea. And then all of a sudden there's the mermaid that appears and they're not fucking or anything yet, dude. It's just when she's sort of still, <laughs> they're, on still they're still dating, you know, <laughs> little. Yeah. Yeah. You know. They're st- still feeling each other out, you know, doing the dance yeah. and making sure they want to take it to this next level. You know, Maybe he's a, a, finger he's a in human, the gill. she's a fish. Could it ever really work? We'll yeah. find out. Yeah. I don't know. Where does it go? Well, we're <laughs> going to show you. <laughs> the other thing, another thing that I really liked, Ryan, that happened shortly thereafter, uh, in, and this will become a theme, pretty much any time a seagull shows up, I was laughing my ass off, dude. <laughs> There's just something about the seagulls posing this existential threat and constantly challenging him that I just found hysterical and it was funny and it worked until, of course, it became horrifying at the end. But uh, so there's that like first scene with the seagull where there's the standoff. He's like trying to bring the rocks back into where wherever it is. But the seagull's standing there in front of the door. And he just like caws at him. And he's like, hey, move away. And he's like, the seagull doesn't. And he just keeps challenging him. And eventually he like finally gets him to, to move by chucking a rock at him. But um, I just like every time there was another scene shortly thereafter where the seagull was like rapping at the window to wake him up and, and it ends up flying away right before he sees him. But I just loved everything about the seagulls constantly antagonizing Winslow's character. It was hilarious. It was the last thing they needed. And uh, but yeah, it was uh, <laughs> the seagulls made for the best antagonist because otherwise there were no real protagonists or antagonists. There was no good guy or bad guy. It was just two men losing their shit and uh you know yeah. the seagulls kind of were though the other character in the film you're absolutely right it, it was that and the the hallucinations and you never really know too like what i loved about this film to this moment i don't really know what was real and what wasn't so yeah uh you know because they start to lose their shit by the end and uh we'll get to this but defoe even challenges pattinson's san- Pat- pattinson's sanity um, you know, and, and uh, by the end when they're all fucked up and, uh, you don't yeah. even know what's real. You're probably back in Canada, blah, 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 you know? And, uh, <laughs> so were the, you know, the seagulls were the one kind of dose that, of reality that you, that kept coming back throughout the film as a little bit of a callback that, uh, to reality almost. Cause you knew they were real. And by the end you knew they were real. So that was. <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing is, uh, Ryan, did you ever consider how much hard work would go into tending to a lighthouse? Never. No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that so many times. Like, I think before that now I've always thought like lighthouse life would be like chilling. It'd be like beach life, but in like, you know, Maine or some, you know, Northeast place like that. And, you know, you'd just be in your slicker playing poker and pinochle or whatever. I never considered having to, you know, haul these giant heavy ass vats of fuel and this and that up the staircase and scrubbing and keeping the water clean and and pumping the water. Just everything about that seemed just like you're living your worst life. Well, it it, uh, it, it reminded me several times throughout the film of those, uh, 
you know, shitty early 2000s motivational posters that were on every uh, salesperson's wall, you know, and it's like endurance and it shows a big wave crashing against the lighthouse rock and it's like perseverance, blah, blah, blah. It has like a little description below it. Um, and I just pictured, uh, you know, some salty dog fucking smoking a pipe with one eyeball and scurvy and he's like, fuck you. <laughs> he's all pissed about <laughs> You don't know what it's like. You don't know endurance, you pussy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I forgot how fucking lame those were, dude. Everybody had those, man. Yeah, like you remember those? Like, it was just like a tennis ball yeah, sitting yeah, on no. a tennis court. It was like, you know, there was that one where it was like a, it was like a boat on like a small lagoon, and I don't even know what it was. It was like Serenity or some bullshit. But it was, yeah, that was it was like it was like the original like synergy acronym that just all business people had, along with the, uh, you know, it was in their office along with stress balls. And then along with those those five ball pendulum things where you pull to one side and then you let it drop and then it just goes back and forth. <laughs> and then these shit posters. Someone made some jack wagon made a fuckload of money off those. I, I don't know if that was all. I wonder if that was all one company. If that was just like one guy that made all that. I fucking think it was. Money. I, I think it was the sharper image actually. What they Are used you to serious? have all that shit, man. Okay, no, no. we got. Oh, all right, you got me. We got. I'm gonna look was, that up. It was, up a, it was a partnership show. between them and Brookstone. I'm gonna <laughs> right. I'm gonna look that up after this show and see what fucking fat cats sitting on a private island right now, uh, <laughs> sipping a mai tai. Listen, I wonder how many of our listeners right now are enjoying this show from the comfort of a genuine Brookstone massage chair. Do you remember those, dude? <laughs> I do. do. You when you go to the mall. And you have to sit there and wait for the damn 15-year-old girl who wanted to take like 36 minutes in there and Man. just sit there. And it didn't even vibrate. She was just using it as a chair. But you were really timid because you you were a shy teenager and you didn't really want to ask her to move or anything. And so instead you just sat there and waited like a jackass. Do you remember that? The, the whole kicker to those chairs were the slots that you put your feet in. Those were the coolest. <laughs> They had like the little surround sound uh, cushions for your ankles and your calves, and they like vibrated around your feet and stuff. And uh, that was what always sold me. The fucking twist is that I could probably afford one of those chairs right now. Now you got me wanting. Uh, I got to go look for to see if they still sell those shits. Or <laughs> maybe they've gotten better. Maybe the technology's gotten better. <laughs> yeah, li li listeners, if every episode from here on out has a slight buzzing underneath that's just noticeable from here on out, just know that Ryan bought that chair. It's, it's one of two things, everybody. <laughs> and one of them's a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you already do the other one. That's not gonna surprise anybody it's a uh it's a chair that's it yeah a chair from Brickstone. yeah with my lighthouse endurance poster yeah that's it <laughs> dude by the way the sharper image in uh out here in la at the glendale galleria when i was younger had something that to this day if i could find i'd probably waste way too much money and buy it which was like a full-size, like, life-size scale replica of one of the aliens from the movie Alien. Holy like, shit, a Geiger? It was like, yeah, yeah, dude, and it was like five or six feet tall, and it was like mostly like, I think it was like kind of like the blue and purple design. That wasn't a queen, it was like a regular one, but it was like standing with its arms out, and it had like the mouth open with like the little guy popping out, and that thing was there for years, wow. and... 
if I could have if, if I could have come up with some sort of like heist to steal it, I, I probably <laughs> probably watched Home Alone seventeen times trying to come up with different ways to sneak into the Glendale Galleria. And each time it just each time it failed. Every single projection and simulation didn't work. But damn it. If I could find that again, I would so just waste too much money and go homeless spending whatever I needed to on that thing. Your door jam flamethrower didn't work to get you into the Glendale Galleria? <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, bitches! Man, I'll tell you what, getting back to the lighthouse, Robert Eggers would tell you how to fuck that alien. <laughs> that alien pussy would be exposed and you'd have your dick in it. <laughs> <laughs> he would have extensive conversations with the costume and makeup department yep. about exactly where the vagina on the alien so would So about this queen alien... Ah, uh, let's talk about that. All these egg sacs, eh? Hmm, how are they getting here? <laughs> and with some of with some of Geezer's drawings, I wouldn't be surprised if he already has like straight alien porn, and yeah. we just never like unearthed it. Like his his widow's like keeping it locked and hidden, but it's there. It's got to so, be there. I mean, it so was already halfway your, there. I'll see it your is. face hugger, and I need a dick hugger. Give it to me. Like, I want to <laughs> see it wrapped around my waist like a tight pair of undies. <laughs> and it won't let go. You can't pry it off. I don't care if you're an android with milk in your neck. <laughs> it ain't coming off. All right, so The Lighthouse, though. There's a movie we watched, everybody. <laughs> I'm telling you, Jason and I, that, that's the, it's just two of us in a lighthouse recording this podcast, losing our goddamn minds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, of the film, one of the scenes that I really did like, too, like, there's a, there's a number of sort of, like, what-the-fuck moments in this movie, for sure, but one of, one of the, well, I don't know if it was one of the first ones, but one of the most effective ones earlier that I remember is when he is trying to go up into... The actual, you know, open the hatch and go where the actual light is. And, like, we get that, like, slime dripping from the grating. And then yeah. he just looks up and there's just this, like, tentacle thing that rolls past or whatever. Yep. And I was just like, wait, 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 wait. Now there's, like, some weird supernatural shit going on or something like that. Yeah, like, I know. I, I think, yeah. And and so let me ask, Ryan, do you think that any of that shit were real or do you think it was all just him going batshit crazy? Uh, I'm going to answer you in three words. I don't care. I was all in for it. I don't give a fuck, dude. I don't care if it was real. It was real to me. I was in my fucking theater shitting my pants, dude, when the fucking sound design. I'm telling you, it was scary. This movie, they made uh, creepy-ass old Willem Dafoe, you know, and then the tentacle and all of that. And Jesus, by the end, I mean, they the payoff was huge. So, uh, uh, you know... I don't know, man. They really built up suspense uh, with, again with the the violins and the foghorn that was going off. And uh, Defoe's character wouldn't let Pattinson up to go see the light. I guess that was a privilege that was reserved for uh, for the wiki. Uh, the wiki is um, yes. the novelty term for the lighthouse keeper. I'm assuming because it's like a candle wick. That's what I took from it. I don't know about you, Jason. That's but, what I uh, guess too. Yeah, Same. yeah, it's like a big candle, right? So you tend to yeah. light at the candle, you're a wiki. So uh, uh, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that's what I got from it. So yeah, he wouldn't let him up there. That was reserved. Pattinson was on a four-week stay, or tutelage, more or less. He's in, embarked on the, uh, to be an apprentice, more, um, you know, with for lack of a better term, uh, to go be a wiki. Mm -hmm. And um, so he's to, uh, under Defoe's tutelage to uh, stay out for four weeks on this rock in the middle of the water, uh, that you have to take a boat to get to. Uh, that's the other thing is lighthouses to me were always like on the coast or on the shore. 
yeah. for all the lighthouses that I've seen. And this fucker was out there. And uh, that's how they get trapped. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on an island. Yeah, they had to get, take a boat to get out there. Uh, and, he, uh, you know, Pattinson ends up, you know, missing his boat back because of a storm. And we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so he wasn't allowed to get up to the light. Um, why we don't know until we see Defoe buck naked with a tentacle, uh, slime, slime and all that. We're like, oh yeah, he's probably, you know, either a losing his, his mind up there or B is into some shit or three. There's a supernatural element to this film that we don't know about yet. Uh, the answer is D all the above. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that's, that is really when the movie took a turn for me as well. I agree. That's when I was like, and here we go. And the fucking, you know, yeah. I felt like everything up to that tentacle was like us going up the roller coaster and you hear the click, 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 click. And you're fucking, you know, your heart's racing a little <laughs> bit. You're looking around. Everything's getting a little smaller. Can't see mom no more. Fucking you're seeing the top and then you, know, you crest the top and uh, that tentacle was like, fuck, here we go and release. <laughs> and it was just bananas. Yeah, well, and then it starts to affect, you know, has the same effect on on Robert Pattinson's character as well. So right off the bat, after that happens, there's that whole scene with the with the with the bird, and you know, uh, Willem Dafoe had explicitly told him like, "Hey, don't fuck with the birds. Don't kill anything. It's bad luck to bad kill luck. a seabird." And in, I think it's the morning after they got drunk or something like that. Um, Winslow goes to get some water and it comes out black, goes back to the water reservoir, dead seagull in there. And as he, you know, looks up from that, there's another seagull up and it attacks him. He ends up getting pissed off, punches it, grabs it, and then just mercilessly beats the crap out of it, man. I mean, he just wails this thing against the ground over and over and over until it's just a bloody pulp. And, you know, you see in the blood splatter all across the rocks and he, he was definitely exercising some demons with that. But and then we get that very interesting scene where not even an interesting scene. It's a very interesting shot where the wind just vortexes and all of a sudden changes due north or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, of course, he calls him on it later. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, yeah, no, the winds changed the moment you killed that bird. Basically, Willem Dafoe's character blames him for this entire thing by killing that bird in that moment. You've upset and, the uh, gods. Yeah. Triton. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Let me, let me just stop right there because as a uh, citizen, current citizen of the great city, the, as a current citizen of the so-so city of Tampa, Florida, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have uh, frequented the beach uh, many of times in my life um, and nothing. I just got such a sense of retribution watching that seagull get beaten to a pulp. I know I love animals. I do steal my sandwich. Will you, you bastard? Oh dude. And they shit on everything and they just fucking fly around you and they call. Uh, I felt Pattinson's pain dealing with that seagull and he only had one dude. Clearwater beach has like fucking thousands of them and never have I been given the opportunity to grab a goal by the legs and just whip it. And, uh, I wouldn't do it. Listen, everybody listening. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, but man, it felt good to watch. It felt really good but to you watch. Would want to. You would want to so bad. Oh, I just, I, I just love watching it. I loved watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, of course, after that, that's when we get to some good old fashioned mermaid fucking. Oh, geez. This mermaid comes out. So there are brief periods after the tentacle where we also see Pattinson uh, going to the rocks. And it's like um, very quick cuts of mermaids and crazy sounds and a head and a lobster trap with a hermit crab coming out of its eye. 
and there's like all this weird kind of uh, symbolism and and uh, uh, imagery, and then and you never really know like is he losing his shit? Are we all? Am I losing my shit? Like what's going on? And then uh, yeah, uh, full blown mermaid scene where they don't quick cut. They uh, kind of show you. And she comes up and she's on the rocks and this and that. And uh, Pattinson gets to interact. And, uh, oh, boy. Um, yeah. Uh, he's, he, you know, it, it's. Uh, I don't yeah, know. If gra- get some of that mermaid puss. Yeah, but mermaid puss. I, I don't know if. Gra- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if graphic is the word. Um, I don't know what you call. It was pretty, pretty graphic. I mean, it, it was graphic. For something that is entirely a construct of the imagination, I think that's fair. Right. To say. Okay. I mean, they show kind, fish not 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 unlike hentai, labia. right? Fish like watching labia. like animated like octopus porn, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, okay. Get creative, but it's it's still dirty, but it's also not real. Yeah. It walks a line. This is that line, <laughs> <laughs> starring Robert Pattinson. <laughs> One of the things I did find interesting about this film is that I generally speaking hate when filmmakers take what I call the Robert Altman approach to dialogue, where they have the actors talk over each other and just record it as a single file instead of grabbing them separate and overlaying them in post. And I actually think that it worked really, really well here. In addition to the fact that, again, uh, Eggers has some of the dialogue completely obfuscated to where you can see them talking or yelling, but you can't hear it because it's in the middle of a, of a storm. And I think that what he did really intelligently with this film is he used it sparingly, right? Because like when Chris Nolan does it with the original cut of Bane's dialogue before everyone made him change it. And he's just being stubborn, like whatever dude with the mask, you wouldn't understand him. It's like, okay, but I'm watching a fucking movie about a guy who wears a mask and I want to understand his nefarious plot to take over the world. Especially if you're gonna have some dense ass plot where I need this information to make fun of, or to make, to, to make sense of it later. So a lot of times filmmakers can just be stubborn like that, but I thought that that really worked well here and they made sure not to communicate any important information during those moments. Right. Just to use it for, you know, evocative sort of um, atmosphere. Look, there were things in this movie that I missed because of the way it was said or how it was delivered or the noises that were over it or the foghorn that was going or whatever. Um, but mm-hmm. it didn't matter uh, as long as you get the gist of the film and just stick with it. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen the film yet, just stick with it. It is such a payoff. The performances are great and it's more about the experience to me, I think than any one mm-hmm. piece of dialogue. There's not really anything that changed. I mean, towards the end, there's some revelations definitely. And the interactions between uh, our two characters uh, specifically when they're drunk, but they make sure to really kind of hammer those points home and make them clear. Um, and you see the reactions from both parties when you find out who Pattinson really is and what he's there for, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, to me, this movie is more about an experience than any one particular thing or scene or act or what have you. Um, so just buckle up and get along, go, you know, go along for the ride. Really. Um, I will also say, uh, do you think Nolan's getting his last laugh that we all have to talk through masks now? And that's just our world that we live in. <laughs> that was like, Oh yeah. I thought that Hello, was funny. Huh? Ryan. Like ancient, yeah. <laughs> Don't I bring my control. thing for you. Don't the people. Control, Jason. 
So, Ryan, I was really impressed by the performance that Willem Dafoe gave. I thought it was really effective. <laughs> does, does, that, does that come across? <laughs> that was great. Uh, but, no, I'm glad you touched on the performance because I, I'm kind of stunned that Willem Dafoe didn't really seem to get any sort of awards attention. This is just an iconic, intense performance. He brings it with every single speech, none more so than... A scene that starts off kind of funny and quickly goes south where Winslow insults Thomas's cooking and Thomas gets like <laughs> so incredibly offended and butthurt by it. He's like, no, say it's not true. Say it's not true. You like my cooking. I know you do. He's like, even what about the lobster? Come on. You got to at least like the lobster. I know you do. And he's like, screw your cooking. And he's like, and so then he gets up and just delivers like the most intense monologuing speech. It's like something that Zeus would give in one of the Greek parables. Is this the Triton monologue? It is, yeah, and it's where the camera pushes in, and Defoe doesn't blink the entire like two minutes. I actually got, I got a clip of that that I'm gonna play for people, and we're gonna listen to it right now and come back in a moment. Yes. What? 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 A rare, a bloody steak. If I, if I had a steak, I would fuck it. You don't like me cooking? Oh, don't be such an old bitch. You're drunk. You don't know what you're talking. How can I possibly like the horse shit you fix us for supper? You're drunk. I, you won't be saying that. King kitchen shanty cooks. There was fried donuts three you're times drunk. a day. You're Country drunk. Country hand bigger you're than your drunk. Food. I'm drunk. I'm you heard me. You've been drunk. Damn ye. Drunk since I first laid eyes on you. You're fond of me lobster, ain't you? Drunken in a Virginia fence. I seen it. You're fond of me lobster. Say it. Say it. Say it! I don't have to say nothing. Danny! Let Neptune strike ye dead, Winslow! Hark! Hark! Triton! Hark! Bellow! Bid our father, the Sea King, rise from the depths full, foul in his fury! Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with punch and slime. To choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with builds and brine and can scream no more. Only when he, crowned in cockle shells with slithering tentacle tail and steaming beard take up his fell befinned arm 
his coral tine trident screeches banshee-like in the tempest and plunges right through your gullet, bursting ye a bulging bladder no more, but a blasted bloody film now a nothing for the harpies and the souls of dead sailors to pick and claw and feed upon only to be lapped up and swallowed by the infinite waters of the dread emperor himself. Forgotten to any man, to any time, Forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten even to the sea. For any stuff or part of Winslow, even any scantling of your soul is Winslow no more, but is now itself the sea. All right, have it your way. I like your cooking. Jason, I'm memorizing this monologue, and uh, I don't know where I'm going to use it, but I'm going to fuck someone up with it. Like, you drop some knowledge like that on somebody with that level of intensity. If you're committed, Jesus, if you're committed, you will win any argument ever. <laughs> That's just the, Absolutely. the deal Absolutely. No, this should be... This should be the new generation's like Ezekiel twenty nine seventeen, the path of the righteous, right? It's the one you <laughs> drop on when you just want to shut down motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> yep. Oh man, like uh, yeah. Anyone that you're in uh, any kind of uh, discussion with or debate with, you drop some Triton nonsense. Oh man, and we're in an election year. <laughs> Let's fucking get it on with a Triton monologue at the debate, son. Let's fucking do that. <laughs> Whoever you're debating, if you do a Triton monologue, the other person's just gonna back away and say, "Okay, bro. Okay, fine. Jeez, <laughs> <You> <laughs> calm down. It's a, it's all right." As you mentioned before, Ryan, there are some revelations that come at the end of the film that kind of change things around a little bit. The first is when Winslow actually ends up talking about he, that the fact that he changed his name. So he reveals that his name is actually Thomas as well, and that he changed his name because he was working a job, and basically his boss was involved in a logging accident, and rather than attempt to help him, he just basically let him die. This would explain some of the log-based hallucinations that we would see in some of the dream sequences earlier. And later on, we also realize as well that uh, Thomas may not exactly be everything that he makes himself out to be. And when uh, when he finds the book, when Winslow finds the book and he understands that Thomas basically gave him a negative review that he basically suggested to the employers that they can his ass without paying him at all. And he becomes hugely offended and then he basically is like, you know what? Screw you, dude. Like everything I've put up with all this bullshit and you're going to you're going to pull this on me. And he basically at that point now starts to use his strength because, I mean, dude, Pattinson's way more imposing physically than Defoe. Right. I mean, Defoe's a gruff, salty dude. But if it comes down to it, I'm putting my money on Pattinson when it's a slugfest. So dude, he finally realizes, I don't know, like, man, I grew up around a bunch <laughs> of like 
old dudes like that that were like uncannily strong, like groundskeeper Willie, like when they rip their shirts <laughs> off. <laughs> they've got like eight pack abs. These guys, you yeah. know, when they shake your hand, they're just like rocks, like the rock man from fucking <laughs> Never Ending Story or Labyrinth or whatever. Fucking, yeah. I think Willem Dafoe is that kind of dude, like calloused and just strong as fuck. He's been living out there for how long? Like, I don't know. Yeah. By the way, the other thing that we didn't mention is at this point, so because the storm has actually ravaged the island and a lot of their rations, these dudes have switched from uh, drinking straight alcohol to a combination of turpentine and honey. And so part of the whole reveal of what's going on and all of these, you know, is he going mad? Is this some supernatural stuff at play? You know, you stack the isolation and the nature of their relationship. On top of that, you have to stack the fact that they're drinking a hell of a lot of turpentine. And yeah, ki- so I think these guys' the brains are just whacked. He kills the bird, upsets the gods. A nor'easter comes through, ravages their island, takes their uh, you know uh, food and all their rations and everything, and uh, and wrecks everything. And it also ruins Robert Pattinson's chance of getting off the island. He was waiting. His four weeks were up. He said, fuck you. That's when they started drinking because he wouldn't drink the whole time, if you recall. And then he finally did a toast. He's like, dude, it's your fucking last day. You know, Defoe was like, pony up. So they toast and that's when he starts drinking and then the storm hits and then he keeps drinking and keeps drinking and keeps drinking until, like you said, then they're on to harder stuff. He starts drinking turpentine and honey. And then we go full fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And uh, <laughs> it's bananas. I mean, to a point where we get naked Defoe with tentacles and like a light coming out of his chest and slow motion. Yeah, that was nuts, dude. That whole thing yeah. where uh, Winslow basically goes up to the lighthouse, finds his own dead body outside of, you know, where the actual light emits from. And then, yeah, all of a sudden... There's naked ass Willem Dafoe, you know, kind of doing like a an Arnold Schwarzenegger T2 pose, uh, you know, cleverly disguising all the bits that should be disguised. And there's just light, bright white light emitting from his eyes and casting over Robert Pattinson's character. And it almost looked like it was like a painting or something, you know, just the way that people yeah. were posed and so and, beautiful. Uh, the composition of the of the frame. It was really interesting. If I if I had that freeze framed and then printed and put uh screen printed and put above my bed. Do you think I would ever have sex again? Ever once? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that- we just hear a lot of buzzing underneath. Um underneath yeah. your, your audio. Brookstone Sharper Image Chair. I'm all about it. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> Lighthouse poster on one side, Willem Dafoe naked above the bed. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Well, and so like I said, Ryan, there's the scene where Winslow, a.k.a. Thomas, finally takes control of the situation and almost beats Willem Dafoe's character to death. And he's kind of having a hallucination of his own. You know, they're drinking a hell of a lot of turpentine. He looks down. He sees a mermaid. He wants to bang it. Then he looks down. And now it's Willem Dafoe, except for he's Neptune, the god of the sea. And then he wants to beat the shit out of him. And then he does until he basically begs him to stop beating him because he's going to die. And then right after that, after Winslow is lording over him physically, he comes out and he's attached to a leash. Because he demanded that he bark as sort of like a submission play. And so now he's got him on a leash and he's making him bark. 
and he's walking him out. We don't exactly know where, and he's walking him ultimately to an open grave. And the funny thing about that, Ryan, is if you actually notice at that point, the storm is done. Yeah. Like, at that point, like, the storm is finally over, which is what we're led to believe is what's preventing them from getting off the island. And so it's just kind of funny, you know, I'm sure that's intentional that, like, by the time they're actually in a position where they could theoretically be saved. Like they're way too far gone to ever, ever be, ever be saved and rescued. Yep. And, uh, I think they've sobered up at this point, right? Don't they, isn't this when they wake up kind of hung over and they're like, Oh, what the fuck? The place is a mess, blah, blah, blah. It's around that time. Or is that, is it, was that before that? It's all kind of bled together. Well, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that, that, that was right before that. And then, uh, that's when, we get the revelation that okay. Robert Pattinson read the book. And oh, that, that's yeah, that's right. That's right. He basically calls him like, got it. Because the book blah, was blah, floating blah. in the water yeah, yeah. that busted through the window. Correct. Got it. That's right. Yeah, okay. because there was a torrential storm the night before. It busted through the window. And so there was a flood that they had, and it had kind of just bubbled up to the surface. Um, and yeah, and so, and speaking of that, you know, end scene where he does at least ostensibly bury him alive, I do have a clip of that that I'm going to go ahead and play for our listeners. We'll be right back. Get up here. What? I say, dog. There's my good lad. You wish to see what's in the lantern? Shut up, old dog. Polish your breastwork. Oh, oh, what protein forms swim up from men's minds and melt in hot Promethean plunder. Scorching eyes with divine shames and horror. And casting them down to Davy Jones. The others... Stay blind, yet in it, see. Oh, the divine gracious and the fiddler's being sent where no man is suffered. The want or toil that is ancient, beautiful, and unchanging. The shade who girdles round the globe and it's true. You'll be punished. (laughs) 
So real quick, Jason, right before we uh, played the clip, you were giving us a breakdown, skimming over some things, and very quickly, you just uh, roughly threw out there that Willem Dafoe turned into King Triton so casually, like it was nothing, and yet that <laughs> was fucking maybe the culmination of the ape shit bananas stuff that was going on in this film. He had tentacles, Robert Pattinson was like fighting it off, like... Uh, fucking Prince Eric and Little Mermaid, you know, fighting Ursula and the whole bit, <laughs> and uh, and then he's like keeps punching him in the face, and then he turns back into Willem Dafoe. The guy's got barnacles on his face and like a barnacle crown. I don't know, man. I I thought that <laughs> the the listeners needed a little more attention on that part. They needed to uh, to know that that was sick, and some production value went into that as well because uh, there was some animatronics or something that was. I mean, it looked pretty solid. Yeah, no, it looked really great. I think for me, the reason that I kind of skip past it is because, and you can, you know, disagree with this and anybody listening can, but I think that at the end of the day, I don't think there's really anything supernatural going on. Maybe there's a couple things that you could fail to explain, like the sudden change of the wind that seemed to be real, but I think that like 99% of all this stuff we're seeing is just them succumbing to madness. Just some good old Ren and Stimpy space madness just set on the water in a lighthouse, you know? They're just going batshit, banana pants, crazy. And that's, you know, so all of this stuff, are it's just, it's just hallucinations and manifestations of their madness. And, okay, well, so I'll tell you what, because, you know, we're pretty much at the end of the film here. So uh, dovetailing from there, what did you think about the the very end where, you know, he finally goes through, opens the hatch you know, the, the sort of uh, lens cabinet opens up seemingly of its own after it seemingly stops on its own. And then, you know, he does that thing where he throws his hand in there. What did you think about all that? Do you think that really happened or do you think it's just all in his mind? Or how how do you explain that whole ending through the lens that you view it? So, yeah, so he walks, he walks Defoe out to his own grave on the leash, throws him in the hole. He goes back. Defoe comes back. He takes a, what is that, a pickaxe or something and just fucking... Oh, no, that's a legit fire axe, bro. That's like a fireman's axe to the shoulder that he took. Yeah, that's what it was. And uh, so he takes... Because then he turns around and he he, he basically crushes it into Willem Dafoe's skull, which is how he dies, like, very shortly thereafter. Yep. And that takes us to what, where we're at now. Um, which is, you know, he's like finally free of Defoe once and for all, gets the keys and then goes up to the lighthouse to go see what the fuss is about. And uh, and then we have our like 2001 A Space Odyssey moment where totally you just get out like of it 2001 which, so much. Yeah, yeah. You get out of it what you get out of it. He opens the light or the light opens itself as he approaches yes. it. The light opens and reveals itself. And we never really Correct. see what's inside per se. Um, other than light beams on his face and we, you know, see a close up of Pattinson and then does it just go right from there to him on the beach? Is that what happens? No. So what happens, which, which by the way, first of all, my, my opinion is the reason they never show you what's inside is because it's just a fucking light, dude. Yeah. There's no crazy alien, anything in there. It's just a light. And these two people have gone insane. And I think that right. informs there's nothing to literally show. everything. Yeah. Yep. You know, and, and to, to, to show it, you just be like, Oh shit. It's a, like, it would take some of that mystery. But to, to me again, like, I don't really think there's, there's much of any mystery behind it, but what happens is he, the thing opens kind of in an inviting way and he walks to it and then he puts his hand in there 
And if you recall, he just starts laugh screaming as what I imagine his hand is burning or something, right? And Eggers basically modulates his voice to where it sounds like this really like heavily digitized, like a computer gone insane sort of scream. And I don't know. I assume that was just a style decision because it did work. It was basically, it was the equivalent of like the foghorn, right? I really don't think there's any sort of time travel. Like it takes place in the 1890s where a hundred years from that technology existing, any sort of digital anything. So I think it's just a stylish decision and it totally works. But I really, uh, unlike say like a 2001, which I would say, yes, you know, the entire final scene in the bedroom is all visual metaphor, you know, whether or not we necessarily understand it, like Stanley Kubrick 100% understands it. And yes, you know, the monolith represents this and, you know, the, the astronaut suit represents this, blah, 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 bed represents this. I think that this is just sort of, uh, again, a little, an instance of uh, style over substance, not to say that there's any lack of substance there. It's just something cool that he did because look, not everything needs to be 100% motivated by like, oh, well, I did this because the, like sometimes it's just, there's some cool shit, dude. Like think about like, you know, like so, some great scene from like Jurassic Park, right? Where it's just like, like I'm thinking actually of there's a scene where like the, where the Velociraptor is walking through all the computers and it's got like the green code that's like over his body. You remember that scene, Ryan? I don't. Oh yeah, so there's like just imagine like there's a velociraptor walking through this computer screen. It's all it's computer room. It's all dark and there's just green bits of code that are projected on him. Like if you that's an awesome scene. If you stop to think about it. Oh, that's right. I do remember that. That does strike a bell now. That. Yeah. That's like that's one of my favorite shots from that movie, which is why I bring it up. And if you stop to think about it, this was pointed out to me at some point. There should be no reason for that to exist because computer monitors don't project code like that, right? It's not no. a projector. It's a monitor. But if you intellectualize that shot, it doesn't exist. And this actually, I remember hearing the same thing uh, when John Houston was asked about Stagecoach. And he's like, hey, uh, why didn't the guys just shoot the horses to begin with? And then the entire thing would stop. And his response was, because then I wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> and so there's certain times where I think we just need to be like, you know what? That was cool. It doesn't have to be motivated. I dug it. Um, so I think that was the case here. But yeah, right. and then he basically has his hand in there so long that it burns. You know, once once it reaches that terminal point, he, you know, goes flying back and he ends up tripping and tumbling down the giant spiral staircase to the bottom. And it's from there that we get the final, final shot of his naked body sprawled outside, being pecked and shit on by a bunch of seagulls that ultimately would get the better of him. Ripped apart by seagulls, missing an eye, guts strewn everywhere. The seagulls had the last laugh. Uh, and, hey, look, if you're on the beach and the seagulls are coming, uh, they, they aren't going to stop at French fries, everybody. This is what they're really after. They want your <laughs> eyes. They want your guts. Kill those gulls. Uh, my Trying to get some of that meat. <laughs> Uh, maybe Jason, maybe it's a, uh, uh, Pulp Fiction prequel and that's the same, what's in the, whatever's in the lighthouse <laughs> is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. I don't know. Just a thought, just throwing it out there. <laughs> we always wondered what was in the briefcase that we always saw was a glow. And, uh, now we know it, it's the same shit that was in the lighthouse that drove him mad. So uh, I think I'm on yeah. some. 
<laughs> I think so. I, I, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would love to know if, much like uh, on the last episode in High and Low, if there was like some sort of fight, you know, that uh, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson had that Tarantino stole from to put in one of those movies, <laughs> even though this would come twenty years later. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's I, a large, that's actually a large part of his success that a lot of people don't realize is that Tarantino is actually a time traveler. And one of the secrets that he utilizes is he actually will jump forward in time and steal stuff from scenes that haven't been created yet, put them in his own movies and then be like, yeah, I made that when really he just jacked it from future someone else. That's, I mean, if not that, what other explanation could there be? <laughs> Jason, stop ragging on him. I love him. He's my favorite filmmaker. I think that's yeah. why I feel comfortable making fun of him. Is because it's I like, just well, thought, no, I love him, so I can say these things. You can't. Like I said, I, I thought I, that I, final I can make scene... fun of my mom. You can't make fun of my mom, right? <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's your mom. That explains so much. <laughs> it's a complicated history <laughs> that I'd rather not go into. Um, Jason, uh, I. I thought this movie was, you know, uh, like I said, the end, the, the last half of this movie was like 50 percent 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, you know, 50 percent uh, Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. I'm sticking to it. Um, I loved this film. When I watched this film, when I sat down watching this film, based on what limited amount I knew about it uh, from trailers and such, uh, I expected the boat ride from Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory for two hours. And boy, did I get it. I, uh, that's the best way I could describe it. I, I had a couple of friends reach out to me knowing I was watching this uh, the other night and they said, you know, how was it? And, and that's how I described it. And I stick with it. It's the boat ride from Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory with Gene Wilder screaming frantically with all the lights on his face, but in black and white and four by three for two hours. Uh, everybody should watch it. 100% agree with you, buddy. Well, Hey, I'm actually going to ask you to go ahead and uh, give us a little bit more description here with your, Three adjectives that describe the lighthouse. Absolutely. Uh, I got salty because I, I I felt like I could almost taste uh, the fucking air there. Like, I, I can't explain enough or really beat or drive home um, how this movie really encapsulates your senses. Watch this on the biggest screen you can, on the loudest speakers you can, um, and, uh, and just breathe it in. Uh, I got morose because it was, I mean... It, kind of a, a downer i don't know um it's a sad existence and uh i got raw because uh geez yeah raw in every sense of the word uh raw dog and a mermaid raw guts on the rocks at the <laughs> end raw uh everything <laughs> this movie was stripped down uh and just oh man yeah i yeah, I enjoy, I enjoyed it uh, a lot. Um, how about you? Yeah, no, dude, those are great descriptions for me. So first one's probably going to seem a little obvious, but uh, intense. I mean, this is just an intense film through and through between the visuals, between the score. You know, there's a lot of yelling in this movie. Like these two dudes are constantly yelling at each other for like two hours so, you know, if that's something it's it's a pretty abrasive film when you really take a step back. And well, that, that's why I made the Willy really Wonka artistic. reference, because when, when Willy yeah. Wonka starts screaming, you know, about the uh, and no one knows when they're rowing and he gets all fucking intense. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of the Triton monologue to me. But, you know, in salty yeah. sea shanty, sea dog talk, you know. <laughs> 
No, totally. Well, and so this will kind of apply to that as well. My second adjective is hallucinatory. And I, that's often how I describe that Willy Wonka scene. This movie was just, it was like a fever dream. You constantly were questioning what was real, what wasn't. You've got some elements that are grounded in reality. And then you've just got some batshit crazy from outer space stuff coming in. And some of it's a dream and some of it's not. And some of it's madness and some of it's not. And so you're constantly just sort of left to second guess what's real and what's not. And my third adjective is fascinating. And I don't mean fascinating in this like, oh my goodness, so fascinating, some pretentious way. Like I was literally fascinated by so many aspects of this film to the point that I would sit there and stop and really consider them. You know, that's when I say fascinating. It's like, oh, like I'm considering something or I'm seeing something or I'm hearing something. I'm looking at something in a unique way that I haven't really before. And mermaid labia, just, bro. <laughs> between the mermaid labia, but also between the shots and the so this film actually helped me realize something about like my own tastes in film and art, but especially in film, which is that like I really enjoy when films are able to take strong traditional genre elements, but then combine them with a sort of like high-minded, sophisticated artistry, almost to the point of pretense. But anytime you can take really solid art, whether it's batshit crazy because you're Joe Dante and you're doing some, you know, live-action cartoon like Evil Dead 2, right? Um, But then, you know, you can also be Tim Burton and you can have some weird surreal shit that you're throwing in there. Um, But you're also combining elements of like comedy with these things, right? So anytime you're able to take, you know, sort of like artistry and genre tropes and blend them together, whether it's comedically or dramatically, whatever that works for me, dude. And so I think that's what this film did really well is like I said, it was basically like, Hey, I'm going to make this batshit crazy genre film about, you know, two dudes on an Island going crazy, but it's going to be presented and filmed like an art project. And I, I just can't get enough of it. No, I mean, yeah, I would watch this again in a second. Um, just, I can't stress enough how this encapsulates all your senses somehow. Uh, if you if you turn up the speaks and you and you really dive in and you listen to it, I was surrounded by this movie like a warm blanket, like Nana's blanket. Uh, this is good <laughs> stuff, man. Good stuff. All right, dude. So let's go ahead and uh, slap a formal rating on it. What you got for your grade, buddy? Dude, I. I have to give this an A plus, man. This was a fucking Whoa! solid film. Ryan giving his first A plus of the entire program. Well, wow. Am I wrong? Where's the lie, as the kids say? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, Ryan. I'm gonna give this one five stars out of five. What? Whoa! Star search. Not even a quarter star <laughs> off. This guy gives some full nope. boat stars today. I love it. Yep. Five stars, A plus rating for The Lighthouse, which I feel like says, you know, just as much about us as it does about the movie itself. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, I've had a, at least a half bottle of turpentine and honey before I did this podcast. I think that's evident in the recording. <laughs> I stand by it. Um, tentacles abound. I'm going to fuck a mermaid. Jason, thanks for having me today. Uh, I learned a lot from this movie. 
<laughs> Everybody, thanks for listening today. I uh, do want to remind you that we love to hear from you. You know, we sit here and we jibber-jabber for hours at a time about these films and about our stupid little jokes. But we also want to hear from you. We're tired of listening to ourselves, so reach out to us. Let us know what you think about our program. Let us know what you think about the movies we watch. If you think my opinion or Ryan's opinions are way off base, let us know that. If you happen to be at a cafe eating a great muffin, you just want to reach out and tell somebody, you can let us know. Any reason that you have out there, we want to hear from you. And who knows, maybe we'll give you a little shout out on the show. Ask your question here. Anything could happen. You can reach us on Twitter at Esoterica Cinema. And if 280 characters doesn't do it for you, you can go ahead and send us an email to esotericacinema at gmail.com. Make sure you join us in two weeks where we are going to have a full episode and we are going to be looking at the film's hero and sweet, sweet Beck's badass song. Ryan, I will see you then. Everybody, thanks for listening. Are you looking for the hottest and wettest entertainment in New England? Then come visit us at Flippers for all your guiltiest pleasures. We have the hottest, cold-blooded girls that love to go down deep and make you rise to the occasion. Open from dusk to dawn and serving an award-winning, all-you-can-eat buffet, including fresh lobster dripping with melted butter. At Flippers, you'll be swimming in all of your wildest fantasies come to life. Nightly two-for-one specials on all of our paint-thinning cocktails. We know you've been working hard. Need to relax? We've got you covered because we won't be. Come and see what everyone is talking about at Flippers, the Cape's newest gentleman's club. Hark! Hark! If it please our father, the Sea King, come forth, ye barnacle-crowned beast from below these darkened depths. Rise up and show all who dare to look upon your buxom-breasted harpies what pleasures of the deep he hath wrought. Teeming with hypnotizing eyes and a siren song beckoning all those young and old, past and present, to gather round and loose their pockets onto the grimy platform bestowed. Beastie gullets and let ye melted drippings run to and fro through beards made gray from years of toil and scrubbings. Drown yourself in mermaid organs glistening in sea foam and be choked. Choked till ye turn red and blue with the pleasures only the sea can provide till ye explode. And any remnants of who you were moments ago are now lost in the milky memory of the plates below. Stabbing. Stabbing that moistened abalone, not knowing where she been or where she be going, but all that she be here now with ye, and me in the corner watchings with all the desperate rage of the sea and the virgin eyes. Make haste now with your mop boy as ye clean up the sad tears of fantasy spent. Come now, lest ye be left out in the storms a-brewing from Titan's rage. On Highway 42 at the corner of McMaster's and Holland Avenue, opens nightly at 6 p.m. From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other, Aberrant Tales. Bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement, and wonder. 
Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.